This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 20th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Warren Cornwall talks about an intense study of urban rats. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. First up, we have a story on the giraffe genome. Uh, every few months, we see a novel genome come out. And sometimes I read these papers and I'm like, what do we do with this information? I mean, what do we really know now that we have the sequence? I think this article, though, which is about a new sequence for giraffes, does a good job putting the findings in context. And they do that by sequencing the giraffe's nearest relative, the okapi. Okay, compare these critters for us, Dave. How do the giraffe and the okapi, how do they match up appearance-wise? Well, they're closely related, but they don't look very much alike. The giraffe is the tallest land animal currently on the planet, ranging from about 4.5 to 5.7 meters tall, whereas the okapi is more of a horse-sized creature. And these differences are really important because, as you can imagine, A, the giraffe is going to need some sort of genetic boost for its bones to get this really long neck that it's got um, and really tall legs. But it's also, if you can imagine, it takes a lot of work, a lot of blood pressure actually to get blood all the way up to that sky-high brain, and the okapi doesn't need to do that. So you can imagine that if the researchers compare the genetics of these two animals, they're going to see some differences. These two closely related animals don't look so much like each other. I mean, everyone knows what a giraffe looks like, but to me, an okapi looks like a cross between a velveteen rabbit and a zebra. It's got like a brown, soft It's a weird-looking animal. And horse legs, obviously, yeah. with their zebra stripes. Right. Anyway, they look totally different. They probably have very different physiologies, but what about their genomes? How different were they? The researchers were right. I mean, they found a lot of differences. In fact, they found 70 genes that had these variations in them that were just unique to giraffes. And what was really interesting was that these variations were in places that you would kind of expect. They were in genes that control growth and development, including the skeleton and the circulatory system. There's also genes that might actually work together to elongate the vertebra in a giraffe's neck. One of the interesting facts about giraffes is they have the same number of neck vertebrae as we do. It's just that theirs are a lot 
bigger and longer. Right. So we could figure out a few of them that had meaningful impact on their physiology or their development. But a lot of them, these 70 genes, just we don't know what their function is. And the study only looked at protein coding regions. So do we really know what makes a giraffe a giraffe at this point? We don't. But the researchers, interestingly enough, are going to try to test some of these genes in mice. I don't know if that's going to create a mouse giraffe, although I would love to have one. But that's going to shed a little bit more light on exactly what these genes do. Next up, we have a story on watching evolution in action. Remember how I was just talking about that seeming futility of looking at a genome in isolation? What if you could look at hundreds, even thousands of genomes, human genomes? What would you see? Now, that is intriguing to me. Dave, where can we get so many people's DNA sequences these days? Right. Well, in this era of advanced genomics, we actually have a lot of big databases out there. And the researchers from the UK's 10,000 Genome Project, they actually looked at 3,000 genomes from the UK. And what they looked at was something called singletons. These are these very rare, small changes to DNA that serve as sort of a molecular clock for how fast DNA is evolving. And actually, the more singletons you have, it means the more likely a gene has sort of stuck around in an unchanged state, which means it really probably hasn't had a lot of evolution or natural selection working on it. So sort of as the opposite of what you might expect, the fewer the singletons, the more evolution, if you like, is happening to a particular gene. So they looked for these markers of pressure on allele, so a different version of a gene that's coming into a population and then maybe spreading widely, maybe not. What did they find was being selected for looking back over the time span covered by this data? Well, they saw some pretty fascinating things. They saw, for example, fewer singletons near alleles for blonde hair and blue eyes, meaning there's been selection for these traits, at least for the past couple thousand years, which is sort of the limit of the time frame of this technique. And that's interesting because it could mean a couple of things. First of all, you've got gloomier skies in Britain. And so the paler your skin, the more vitamin D you're going to be soaking up, which could give you a an advantage over people that maybe can't soak up as much vitamin D. Maybe you'll have more energy. Also, or alternatively, could be that people in this population just preferred people with blonde hair and blue eyes. And if you're a preferred person, you're going to be having more sexual encounters, going to be producing more offspring, and therefore you're going to increase selection on these types of genes. And the researchers also found fewer singletons around alleles that confer lactose intolerance, which allows adults to digest milk, which is something that would have been potentially more important as society, you know, became more of an agricultural society. We relied more on cow's milk, especially into adulthood. So some interesting correlations they're seeing there. Lastly, we have a story on giving people diseases on purpose. Basically, this story is about giving people curable diseases like cholera, malaria, dengue even, and then trying out new drugs and vaccines on them. Why is this approach on the rise? Why are more study designs incorporating this? Well, I think what researchers are finding is a lot of drugs and vaccines are failing in clinical trials. And often that's because you test these things on animal models and they look really good, but then you try to do it on, in humans and things don't work out so well. Clinical trials are incredibly expensive. They take a lot of time, especially if we're talking about rounding up hundreds or thousands of people. And again, you know, there's no guarantee that they're going to work out. Right. And then the question is, how ethical are we going to be if we're doing this? This is not a new idea. In fact, scientists used to do these kinds of experiments on prisoners. 
that is no longer allowed. But <laughs> these days, why would someone take part in a study like this? Well, money. <laughs> money doesn't hurt. In fact, there was a, st a recent study in Baltimore that was offering people $4,000 to be purposefully infected with influenza virus. That's a lot of money, right? Uh, and so uh, that's certainly an incentive on the part of the people volunteering for these trials. So, Dave, would you participate in a challenge trial? I don't think so. I don't need the money that badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He compares them to mountain climbers, like people who yeah. would like climb a mountain. Well, you said those are the kinds of people that yeah. sign up, right? Yeah. Some people would be excited about that, but no. Not you? No. I don't no. like being sick. No, I don't like being sick. And I just don't. I do like that the researchers did it to themselves in a lot of these cases. One of the researchers gave themselves malaria. Yeah. And then they, um, they're like, that's the worst. We should cure malaria. Okay, what about regulation? Who is taking a look at this and, and trying to figure out when it's okay to give somebody a disease? You know, sometimes these diseases are contagious, right? The flu is contagious. Right. You know, one of the issues brought up in this article is that there is a lot more regulation, a lot more red tape, as you might imagine, than there has been in the past where a couple hundred years ago, a doctor could say, hmm, let me take a small child and infect that child with cowpox to see if it protects them against smallpox, which appeared to have worked. <laughs> but uh, you're not seeing a whole lot of that or any of that really today because it's unethical. It's never going to pass any sort of review. But now you have a lot more governmental review, a lot more institutional review than you had in the past. So the smallpox vaccine basically came about this way. What are some of the successes that advocates of this approach now can point to? Well, uh, there was a cholera study that was done, and cholera gives you some fairly nasty gastrointestinal symptoms. But what was learned from this trial was that one of the leading vaccine candidates against cholera didn't actually seem to work that well in people that were intentionally infected with this bug, which caused researchers to sort of go on a different track with a vaccine. Right. And those people actually had cholera. They went through the whole process of having cholera. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes they do things like give you the vaccine or the cure along with the disease. And so people don't even necessarily get the symptoms. And another thing they're doing nowadays is they're actually sort of attenuating the viruses. They're making them less pathogenic. And so people get some of the symptoms or they get some pretty mild symptoms, but they don't get the full-blown disease. All right. What else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new way to make powerful antibiotics. Also a story about the five genes that determine your nose shape. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an item about why a scientific expedition to Mount Everest was cut short. Also a story about why your call and text records reveal a lot more about you than you think. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. What if you could help combat climate change and make double-digit returns at the same time? Now you can with Wonder Capital, the leading online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the United States. In fact, Wonder won the 2014 U.S. Department of Energy Sunshot Challenge. Your investment with Wonder goes directly to helping businesses install photovoltaic solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive steady monthly cash flows in the form of interest payments. 
And best of all, Wonder doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Learn how you can begin earning up to 11% returns at wondercapital.com science. That's Wonder with a U, Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Although humans have lived in close quarters with rats for time immemorial, we don't actually know much about these city-dwelling rodents. Are they adapted to urban life? How much do they travel in a given day? Urban wildlife researchers are searching for answers to these questions in cities around the world. And the stakes are high. Rats play a role in the transmission of disease and are particularly dangerous in urban slums. I spoke with science contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall about his recent trip to Brazil, where he wrote about a multi-decade rat research project in Pau de Lima. There was a physician, an infectious disease expert, who's now at Yale, Dr. Albert Coe, who was at a hospital in Salvador in 1995. Salvador is the third biggest city in Brazil. It's a city of about 2.7 million people. So he's at this infectious disease hospital in 1995, and these people start coming in in early 96 who are really sick, and a lot of them are dying. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And what they figure out is a number of these people had leptospirosis, which is a disease that at that time was really thought to be a disease of the countryside, both in Brazil and other places. It's a bacteria that infects people. It's transmitted in the urine of rats and farm animals. And so generally the animals pee, it gets transmitted in water. And then during the monsoon season, people are constantly exposed to that water. And so then they're exposed to the bacteria. So the thinking was, at that time, this is a rural disease. What they find is that all these people from Salvador are coming down with this disease, and so they start to try to track down where it's coming from. And what they find is that most of the sickness is coming from these slums, these favelas in the city that have open sewers, no stormwater control, people living really close in with a lot of rats and a lot of water. They published these results in 1999, and evidence is just starting to emerge in a few different places that this is becoming a disease of the urban slums and not just of the countryside. Right. And then this study takes a real mix of public health research and urban ecology, I guess. What kinds of methods are they using to look at how this population of people and this population of rats are interacting? Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating how many different ways they're approaching this. So they decide to focus on one neighborhood, one slum in Salvador called Pau de Lima. So they go to Pau de Lima, and they decide that they're going to try to figure out all the different ways that humans, rats, and this disease are interacting with each other. They're talking to the people who live there. They're blood samples from thousands of people who live in this, in this slum and asking them about their behavior, how they're interacting with the environment. Do they see rats around? They're also trapping and tracking to figure out how are the rats moving through the slums. Right. Isn't there a, a sooty paper that they put around? Yeah, there are these little plastic uh, squares that they paint with this soot, essentially, that when they walk over, it will leave little paw and tail marks in it. So they blanket this neighborhood, in a sense, with these squares in order to try to come up with this really fine, detailed account of the rat traffic. They're also doing standard trapping, but they just can't set out enough traps to do it. And so th they've developed this technique for basically looking for the rats to leave their paw prints everywhere. 
Another thing that's unusual is that they work with the community, and so they form alliances with the community groups to try to educate them about the science so that the community groups can lobby for the government for more effective public health. With all this data, they're looking at path of rats, they're trapping rats and testing people for disease, they're testing rats for disease. What kind of results are they getting? Is, is it useful for changing the intervention strategy? Even though they're 20 years in on this study, they're still trying to figure out all the complex dynamics that are driving the disease. That being said, they've learned a lot, partly because there was so little that was known when they started. Questions like, are we really sure that rats living near your house was a risk factor? Things like that. They've come up with a number of interesting insights. You know, a lot of them are about what risk factors put people at greater risk of getting the disease. A lot of it is indicators of poverty. People who live lower down in the valley where it's more prone to getting flooded are more likely to get the disease. People who live near where there's evidence of rats, like rat burrows, are more likely to get the disease. They found that if the household per capita income rises by a dollar a day, the risk drops by half. So that's this obvious connection between poverty and the disease. The thing that really connects all this together is the water. I think that's one of the real insights. And people already knew that from the countryside, but I think to really understand in detail how the disease is transmitted through the water and how the people are interacting with the water in this kind of urban slum, they've really gotten some insights into that. Let's talk about how serious this disease is. I mean, I'd never heard of it before reading this story. It's a bacteria. It infects people. It's carried by animals. What else do we know about it? Well, the ballpark estimate is that around the world, about a million people a year get it, and about 60,000 people a year die from it. And the scientists that I've talked to who were involved in that study say that's a very conservative estimate. The disease is so underdiagnosed, and the symptoms are often mistaken for other kinds of diseases like dengue, that they expect the numbers are actually quite a bit higher than that. Among the list of neglected diseases, this is one of the most neglected ones. So it's really hasn't received a lot of attention. Well, we're talking a lot about rats, where they go, what they do. How does this effort to understand the role of rats fit in with other solutions to this disease? So better sanitation, water infrastructure, antibiotics, those kinds of things. Scientists that I talked to said the biggest answer is dealing with sewage and stormwater so that people aren't walking around in it, you know, on muddy paths. So separating people from the water. There are plenty of rats in New York City that carry leptospira, but you don't have huge outbreaks. So the scientists will say in the long run, that's the kind of thing that would really address it. But the slums of the world are so massive. And the idea that you're going to be able to quickly install all this modern infrastructure in them is so unlikely that they're really trying to figure out if there are other things that can help address the problem. That would be things like catching rats. Then you get into the questions of, are there certain strategies? Is there certain kind of rat extermination efforts that are more productive than others? Are there ways that you can identify hotspots where the disease is concentrated and just steer people away from that? They're looking for ways that are faster and cheaper that can still get results. As they build up this data set, how can what's being learned here in Salvador apply to urban centers and slums that are growing everywhere all over the world? 
a lot of the risk factors that are driving the disease in Salvador are present in urban slums all over the world. Poor sewage and infrastructure, an abundance of rats, people living in close proximity to these animals. So there's a lot that these things have in common. There are also things that are particular to this place. The geography, how the water moves through the environment. They're on these very steep hillsides where all the water sort of concentrates down into the bottom in these streams, and that's where the disease is the most abundant. You know, not every slum is the same. And they're trying to come up with this incredibly fine-grained, detailed computer simulation, in essence, of how the disease moves through that community. And so is, is there a difference between a slum in Mumbai and a slum in Salvador that would make it hard to transfer some of these lessons? That's possible. They, they, you know, they're still trying to work out how it works in Salvador. Warren Cornwall is a contributing correspondent for science. His story is part of a big package this week on the urbanization of planet Earth. Read more about the future of our planet as many, many people move into cities at www.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.